0: It's Casey, thank you so much for shining on today. How you doing? We made it to July. The summer of not too much to do, right? The summer of finding new things to do. Not a lot of vacations being planned, not a lot of concerts or ball games to go to. But you know, we'll find a way. Peaceful, easy summer, perhaps. wishing you that and a healthy one, too. Here's a little something special for all of you who go on social media and take those personality tests. Have you done that? Then you post them on Facebook, the results of your personality test. Uh, Those are entertaining, right? It's a way to pass the time, I guess. But your personality isn't permanent personality isn't permanent. That is the title of a new book by psychologist and best-selling author Benjamin Hardy, Ph.D. He does a whole lot of debunking in this new book. Benjamin Hardy, what do you mean that personality isn't permanent?
1: Well, what I mean is, is that there's popular misconception about personality, for example, that it's who you are, it's your innate, authentic self, and that it doesn't change. And that's just not, re- and even popular personality tests, like Myers-Briggs, actually kind of push people into that same perspective, that your personality is who you really are and it doesn't change. That's not what the research shows. Research shows that your personality totally changes throughout your entire life, and that people underpredict how much they actually already have changed and how much they will change and that you can very much proactively choose who you
0: want to be Mm, very much proactively choose who you want to be you know this makes so much sense to me personality isn't permanent break free from self-limiting beliefs and rewrite your history benjamin hardy's book because you know if i met the person i was at say 25 i i wouldn't know her I've, yeah. Well, I you yeah,
1: yeah you wouldn't be her. I wouldn't <laughs> sure.
0: be her, and you know our personalities were completely completely different. So, what made you want to do this research?
1: two things were kind of funny. One was uh, I did have an experience when I was in an undergrad where my wife literally almost didn't marry me because of the score I got on a personality test. You know, and and those types of, yeah, it's pretty funny. Like, you know, her parents and stuff, they were like, "Uh uh-oh, like, you know, I took a test called The Color Code. And this honestly isn't the reason I wrote the book, but it's just really funny. You know, those types of tests can lead to stereotyping, and obviously there's a lot of conversation on that subject nowadays.
0: Right. Um,
1: But uh, the thing that really pushed me to write this book was the subject of trauma. And trauma is often misunderstood. Trauma is often thought of as like big life-changing like going to war or like you know but trauma is actually it could be any negative event that shapes how you see yourself it Mm -hmm. could be being told you're bad at math. And those types of experiences stop you from developing, and and, and they literally stop your personality from growing. And so um, I just wanted to explain to people why personality seems more consistent or more stuck than it really needs to be or has to be.
0: Okay. I, I, you know, I'm writing down so quickly. This this is wonderful. Trauma can stop your personality from growing. And you say trauma is something as, as much as being told you're bad at math or don't sing too loud in the choir. Um, and think about the global trauma we're experiencing. Seeing right now,
1: it's big. We're going through some big stuff, and really, it's, it's it's really important to realize that your identity is actually different from your personality. Your identity is how you see and explain yourself. It's the it's the way you it's it's your story and. Trauma is a story. You know, it's it's not actually what happened to you. It's what it's the meaning you gave to what happened to you, and it shaped how you see yourself. And your identity or your, you know, the way you see yourself shapes your behavior, which over time becomes your personality. And so people, you know, we are going through a global trauma, and it's really the meaning you give to this. You can choose the way you see this, and ultimately that's going to impact what you become in the future.
0: Right. You were talking about these personality tests like Myers-Briggs and the color code. Couldn't that be just, uh, you know, even like the mood? you were in that day when you took the test?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of research on that. If you take one of those tests in a different environment or around different people, you're going to get a different score. What's really funny, though, is Catherine Briggs, literally the person who created Myers-Briggs, she had a fixed mindset about people. She literally didn't believe people could change. And the basis of her theories is, is that your personality type never changes. You know, people still hold to that dogma today, even though common sense says, says the opposite. There's actually no such thing as a personality type, by the way. That's not how a true psychologist would ever explain personality. It's a it's a very limiting and discriminating view of people, which is it's kind of surface level. Um but yeah, those tests are, are um, something you should not put much stock into. Let's just say that.
0: Right. But as a civilization, our, our entire personality, the personality of the civilization is changing. Maybe then surface was all we were up to. Now we can maybe dig a little deeper and we can definitely see the fluidity in people's lives. But tell the listeners right now how something like the future self-checklist is going to help them moving forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really quickly just want to address it. What you're saying is so wise as far as what we're going through right now is literally a cultural shift. Mm-hmm. And obviously culture is the personality of a group. Right. And so, like, we're, we're, now, we're now reassessing what's going on and we're making a big shift. And as a result of what's going on, we're actually changing our view of the past, right? We're, we're now no longer seeing events in the past with the same eyes. Cause mm-hmm. of, and so, yeah, it's, it's amazing. But, yeah, as far as future self, there's so much research on this subject now, and what Daniel Gilbert, who's a Harvard psychologist, has found is, is that very few people spend much time imagining their future self. Instead, we spend way more time remembering the past. And there's other research that shows that you actually want to view your future self as a different person, kind of like you when you were talking about yourself at age 25. You're no longer that same no, same girl. Well, what people as a rule tend to do is, is they tend to think that who they are right now is who they're always going to be, even if they know that they're way different from who they were five, ten years ago. Right. And so it's actually really healthy mentally and psychologically to say your future self is actually going to be totally different from from who you are today. They're going to see things differently. They're going to maybe even dress differently. They're going to have different priorities and focus. And so you want to actually start to conceptualize who that future self is and then ultimately decide who you want to be maybe three, ten, five years, you know, three, three years into the future and then you want to shift your narrative because your identity is the story you tell about yourself. And most people, again, as a rule, their identity is completely based on either the present or the past. And if you can shift that where you're now telling people about your future self, telling people about who you want to be, yes, that can be a little scary because you might fail, but it also really compels you forward. It really leads to a lot of growth what we call peak experiences and a lot of it leads you to building more confidence and so you want to actually shift your narrative where you're telling more people about your goals rather than telling so many people about who you think you are today
0: right wow Benjamin Hardy PhD personality isn't permanent you're going to love the sticky note I have on my computer at home the sticky note says what does my future self need me to do right now
1: Brilliant. Brilliant. Brilliant, right? Brilliant. You're now making choices. Well, you're making choices now based on what your future self would want rather than what you want today, which right. leads to huge growth.
0: Yeah, and what I would I li- love it.
1: Yeah. Beautiful sticky note. Thank you. What
0: I would like to say to the class of 2020 is, yes, you can be that thing you want to be, and you can also be like 11 other things, too.
1: <laughs> Amen.
0: Amen. Oh, my goodness. Personality isn't permanent. Tell me why, then, Benjamin Hardy. Some people just dig in. This is who I am. This is how I'm always going to be.
1: Uh, and that's a lot easier to do than, you know, it's a lot easier to just not have to change. You know what I mean? It's a lot easier to fall on a story and just say, look, that's uncomfortable to me. That's not where I'm going to go. I'm not going to deal with that. Like, you know, your comfort zone and your personality are literally the same thing. And so to do anything outside your comfort zone creates some uncertainty. You know, it creates the possibility of failure. That's also where choice is, by the way, in freedom. But I think people, they prefer stability over freedom. Mm-hmm. They prefer the safeness of their story. They prefer being consistent versus actually having the freedom of trying new things and growing like we did as kids. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of factors, obviously, that lead to that. As I said before, you know, not wanting to deal with the pain of former experiences that were just hard, which you have to learn how to deal with and become more flexible. Also, just you know, basically, you know, so the the two major factors, honestly, that lead people to being stuck is low emotional development, which can happen because of not resolving trauma. So you stop emotionally developing as a person because you have to learn how to, you know, deal with emotions and become emotionally flexible and dealing with uncertainty and change. And a lot of people don't want to obviously do that. And so they stop emotionally developing. The other one is just their consistent roles in their environment. They're just staying in the same role, staying in the same situation, staying around the same people. And so, Of course they don't think they're going to change much, and maybe they don't even seek to change.
0: Right. But culture is the personality of a group, and we are watching our culture change
1: before our eyes, so change is possible. It's amazing. We're watching huge stuff change right now on a cultural level.
0: Yes, we most certainly are, and that is a beautiful thing. Keep changing, keep making life better for everybody. Hi, it's Casey. Thank you for Shining On. It's Shine On, the health and happiness show, our guest right there. Benjamin Hardy, PhD, personality isn't permanent. And of course, those of you who listen to the show know that sticky note that I have on my computer, one of many. I should do a show just about the sticky notes on my computer. think I might do that Um, but that isn't my quote what does my future self need me to do that was um, Gary John Bishop remember he's been on the show a couple of times the Scottish guy and he said every day a hundred thousand times a day ask yourself what does my future self need me to do right now and I've gotten pushback on that people are saying well I'm not in the moment well yeah you can be in the moment and you can be using that moment to build what you want to build in the future. All right, but your personality isn't permanent. Thank you, Benjamin Hardy, for that. What I love about it is if you know like a teenager (laughs) who's going through a thing right now, you can say, well, maybe they won't be that way forever. Benjamin Hardy, I like him a ton. Okay, I wish I had the book to give away, but since the pandemic, I'm not getting a lot of books in the mail, so I didn't get that one, but I did get this one. Oh my goodness, I want you to meet our next guest. Her name is Janine Urbanic-Reed. Now, we don't talk about a lot of um, memoirs here, although, oddly, we have had Anne Lamont on talking about her memoir, and Anne Lamont does the intro to this book, Janine Urbanic-Reed. The book is called The Opposite of Certainty, and Janine has a couple of powerful messages to share about what it's like to live with a young person, what it's like to live with a child with a chronic illness. So many golden nuggets in here. I hope you'll stick around to the end. Janine, thank you for being here. I'm going to start reading your own words back to you. Page 260. I've spent my life walled in by other people's dire situations. What can you say to that?
2: Mm, yeah, well, you know, it's it's. <laughs> well, I grew up in alcoholism, you know, and and I have had a lot of I've had a lot of healing from that, and there's been a lot of healing in my family. But what I learned is to kind of orbit the sick person in the household. Now that's a useful skill that I carry to extremes in my adult life. Um, and then I became a caretaker of my you know of my children, right? And then one of those children with a health issue. So what I had to to unlearn, which is relevant, I think, in the widespread world today, is so many of us are caregivers. So how do we give care? How do we love others and not lose ourselves?
0: Wow. Say that again. In your recovery from growing up, With alcoholism in your family, Mm -hmm. you learned to orbit the sick person. Is that what you said?
2: Yeah, because if the sick person was the the illusion was that the, the sick person, the acting out person, could be made well if we just got the circumstances right around him. You know, we never knew that alcoholism was the problem. You know, we didn't know this was a disease. We didn't know that my dad was afflicted and suffering. We just knew that if we had to get things just right, and I think so many people can relate to that. You know, it's pretty widespread affliction. So, um, yeah, so I learned to try to manage circumstances because if I could get the circumstances just right, then maybe I could be all right. Right. You know, and that had to be the priority before I could even look at my own heart and what my own... well-being right so let me just try to
0: catch a lesson early in here uh janine if orbiting the sick person to try to get the conditions just right so they'll be okay if that's not the answer what is the answer
2: well so you know things just aren't black and white i think you know it's it's not there are a lot of shades of gray and that's what i've had to learn is that it's not noble of me to put all of my well-being aside. I'm not doing anyone any favors. That gets me into my victimhood, which is not, believe me, it's not a pretty place for me to be. It's a familiar place for me to be, but not a pretty place to be. So what I had, what I learned walking through this extended crisis with my son, extended uncertainty, extended we-don't-know-what's-going-to-happen-today kind of situation, is that at some point I had to start taking care of myself. Okay. And that this was not selfish in fact it was the most selfless thing I could do because it was selfish of me not to take care of myself and expect others to do that for me
0: all right the opposite of certainly a memoir and uh Anne Lamott does the foreword you know she used to live in this area she was on the show not that long ago wonderful yeah, yeah. so um Very person. yeah she's 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 an amazing creature how did you come to uh, befriend her
2: we, we live in the same community, and when my son was first diagnosed with his brain tumor, she approached me at a, at a prayer meeting we were, we were at and offered to pray with me every day, and she said she had done that for many people, but I was the first person who called her the next day and said, okay, you know, and she lent me her, um, she had a magnificent Mary med, uh, medallion, uh, and I, I now have my own, I'm pinching it at this moment, and she lent that to me until the crisis passed, so um, oh. we became best friends about 12 years ago, and I kept her married for probably a year until she bought me my own. <laughs> oh, yeah. that is so wonderful. Yeah.
0: Oh, I'm, I'm so, I, wow. Well, that's a little extra added something. All right. Yeah. Um, two things I want to ask. First off, what is the state of your family at this moment?
2: Well, we are, you know, we are in uncertain times. We're all under one roof right now, which is pretty wonderful. I have three children. Um, I'm, I'm still married to my, my husband, my, my same husband. And we're, you know, we're, we're in a bit of a low patch with uh, my son's health, and we're, you know, again, back to those tools. Where am I right now? Right now, it's a beautiful day here. My son is sleeping in, as 23-year-olds are apt to do, and, you know, we, we kind of go from there, from moment to moment. What's his name? Mason.
0: All right. We would like everyone listening to right now send a healing prayer to Mason. We, Thank
2: you, Casey. We, That's beautiful. We I, can do that, right? I really appreciate that. Absolutely. I you know, I, I believe in prayer. I really do.
0: All right. And the second thing I wanted to say, what was the turning point? What was the what was the moment when you said, I cannot do this anymore?
2: There was a moment when and I write about this in the book, um, you know, where I, I tried absolutely everything as a mother to do it right because I was determined my kids would never be hurt, right? And then here comes this foe that I couldn't control, uh, you know, brain tumor. There was a moment when we, Mason was hospitalized, this long hospitalization, and he was needing another surgery. And I, I called one of my closest friends, and she said, you don't think you can do it, right? And I said, yes, I can't do it. That's right. I just cannot do this. And she paused, and she said, but you're doing it. And that was the turning point for me. You're doing it, and from that moment, you know, and that was also the you know, that time frame that I started taking care of myself. I started taking just a little walk in the day. I'm not talking about, you know, two hour massages or anything like that, but a walk, a glass of water, a call to a friend, little steps to take care of myself because I realized that my life didn't start when circumstances went changed for the better. My life started, was this is it, that this is the life I have, you know, and that was a huge turning point for me. Yeah.
0: You are so um, kind and generous to share all of this with us. How does Mason feel about the book?
2: You know, he loves it. He loves it. I read everything to him. About him, so that you know, I didn't want to embarrass him in any way. But he's grown up with this idea that of wanting his experience to help other people, and you know, he's done a lot of advocacy for uh, young kids with cancer and spoken at events. You know, there was a cute little skate skate benefit in our uh, community years ago, and he was the main speaker. He's done some things for Make a Wish, so he really wants to help other people. And that was kind of the point of the book—to share our experience to help others. So I'm. I'm and So Mason was pretty thrilled, and he loves loves to hear the stories about him.
0: Oh, wonderful. What would you say Mason's message is?
2: Mason's message is to find the good and the joy in, in any given moment. Now, that doesn't mean we ignore that things are sad and things are hard, but somehow in acknowledging what's true, the sad part, the hard part, there's also room for joy. And Mason finds the joy, you know, still, to, like even this weekend, I'm in my kitchen doing whatever I'm doing, and I just hear his laughter from downstairs, and I'm like, oh, okay, all is right with the world. And Mason always finds a reason to laugh. Fantastic. And it's a joyful, kind laugh, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. And 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 we've heard your message, which is take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, then you can take care of others. Then you and. can take care of others, and we we know. We but it, but what I like what you said was just taking a little walk every day, not a marathon, not a thousand steps, just a little walk every day. What does that do for you?
2: Well. I've had to learn to be gentle with myself. You know, and then sometimes I need to hit the reset button. I also have this this default that if I have a problem, I am so focused on that problem, and I'm like, you know, like, it's like a knot, you know, and you pull on the strings tighter. And sometimes the point of, if well, I, my, my worries might be very legit, legitimate. I need to set it down and look away for a little while. And inhale. I for, oh, Crazy, crazy, right? I forget to inhale. I forget to breathe. Um, and a friend of mine told me years ago that, the root of the word breath is spirit you know if you go down to it's in it's in the book I say it much better I say everything much better in the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm a writer not a not a not a person who does your job right but I, so I get to edit and re-edit myself but that that, that there's something that the spirit you know inhaling deeply slowing down and the, you know I am often shocked by how Um, unkind the voice to myself can be. Mm -hmm. So I'm really trying to cultivate that gentle voice in myself and lo and behold, if I cultivate that I've got a gentle voice towards others coincidentally.
0: I'm going to ask you a question. I do a lot of women's workshops and one of the first questions I ask is how do you love
1: Compare it to
0: something. And I compare my love to a Rottweiler puppy. It's very much (laughs) in your face and wiggly and happy. And then I ask the ladies to uh, tell me how they love themselves. And is it the same? Do they love out the same way they love in? And when you can love yourself the way a fairy godmother would or Mm -hmm. Mother Mary would,
2: Mm -hmm. you're on
0: the path to self-care.
2: That's beautiful, that is beautiful, and I probably love like an old golden retriever
1: <laughs>
2: at this point. I was probably the Wiggly puppy more, but right now i'm an, I'm the old golden retriever part that kind of just just comes up and doesn't doesn't leave your side at this and um and I'm really working on the self love that has been the hardest thing for me, yeah. Yeah. It has been the hardest thing, and and again, like it's that irony. How um, when I, when I'm gentle with myself, when I'm kind with my self talk, that just flows out of me to other people too. As does the critical talk inside my head. Ah.
0: All right. I want to go back just to uh, where we started when you said um, in an alcoholic home, when uh, you know everyone orbits the sick person, trying to make them just everything right for them so they'll be okay, right? Yes. What happens to the rest of the members of the family? Like, how did your other children respond to you orbiting around Mason?
2: Well, it's it's not ideal, let's just say. You know, uh, I... Um I was always aware of trying to, you know, and I think as mothers, we do this. We try to parse out our attention in equal portions, and that just doesn't happen when one of those children has cancer. You know, it just does not happen. So it's been hard. It's been really hard. I have to say that my other children have gotten a resilience that they probably wouldn't have gotten if I'd been successful in protecting them from all pain in life. Wow. So they are really empathetic and kind people, even today, you know, they're um, 20 and 25 and Mason's 23, and how they um, help out their brother while he's, you know, going through this rough patch is pretty remarkable. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been very challenging, and I've really been aware, it's one of those things that, those inadequacies, like as a human mother, um, just feeling the limits of my power, it's painful. It's painful that I can't couldn't parse out myself more equally during those key times.
0: Mm. All right, the opposite of certainty is the book. Um, talk to the listeners. Tell them why they should pick this up.
2: Well, we're all asked to do hard, <laughs> especially now in the world. We are asked to do hard. We're living in uncertain times and with the unknown. And my story tells you that as a regular woman. Um, living in extraordinary times, I was able to do that, and I was able to tap a source of strength um, that I didn't know I had, and I, and I don't think I'm unique in that way. So my hope is to be a companion in these uncertain places, and maybe in um, seeing that I could do it, you'll know you can do it too.
0: That is Janine Urbanic-Reed. Let me tell you about her. Born in Chicago, she was vice president of a PR firm before she started writing. Now she's writing everywhere, and she talks about and writes about what connects us. It says here in her bio she lives in Northern California with her family and a motley assortment of pets. She attends St. Andrew Presbyterian Church in Marin County. All are welcome. And that's sweet. And I do have a copy of this book, The Opposite of Certainty, Jane Urbanic Reed. If you'd like a copy, just send me an email from the connection link you'll find at C O. Now, let me tell you what's going on. Let It Shine, Inc., the foundation we started that is gathering love and giving it away. We're doing it. I also started two weeks ago a farmer's market. It's an outdoor market of all sorts. There's art, there's vegetables, there's fruit, you name it, we got it. Remember we collected all those prom dresses back in February? Well, we brought a couple hundred of them to the market and just hung them everywhere. And oh my God, those dresses flew home to many happy homes. That was a beautiful sight to see. Now we are collecting at the market this week uh, household items, everything but the kitchen sink. We're collecting those at the market in Verplank Sundays from 8.30 till 12.30, and we'll find a way to give them away to families who need them. You know, we're, we're rocking and rolling. And I'm learning every day. I'm learning something new. So uh, come to the market at Mount Carmel in Verplank this weekend. There's an outdoor yoga class at 10 out on the field. And then there's music starting at 11, live music. And so many vendors. Oh, my gosh. We've got fresh bread, fresh baked goods, Georgia peaches coming up this weekend, a Hudson Valley farm items. I, I'm just, I'm having a ball. I don't know where it's leading. But you'll be the first to know. And you can find out more at Casey.co. All right. Our thought for the day is from Janine Reed's friend, Anne Lamott, who said, Hope begins in the dark. The stubborn hope that if you just show up and try to do the right thing, the dawn will come. You wait and watch and work. You don't give up. Love one another. Shine on.